Today we're going to continue the Masters of the Craft series. You've been going out, Brian, and interviewing all sorts of uh, folks, really focusing on the craft side of what they do. Uh, this week's episode is a is a big one. This week, uh, the guest is Frank Oz. I'm a little amazed that there are people who don't know his name. They know all of his work, so or or a lot of his work. He directed uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. He directed Little Shop of Horrors. He directed a movie called The Score, uh, Death at a Funeral. What a lot of people will know, too, are his characters, the, the characters that he brought to life. Uh, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Bert, uh, Yoda. And I think mm. that not enough people talk to him about his process, how he thinks, how he works. Um, and I wanted to get into that. You know, sometimes they tell you, be careful. You don't want to meet your heroes, you know, but uh, yeah, you know what I mean? But uh, Frank is not a disappointment as a human being um, in any way. Uh, just, uh, just a genuine uh, down-to-earth dude who, um, I'm not going to lie, he knows he's good at what he does, but he doesn't, it doesn't define him. Hello and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker, Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by director, producer, actor, and legendary puppeteer Frank Oz. Frank is known for performing such iconic characters as Yoda, Cookie Monster, Miss Piggy, and Grover, and for directing movies such as The Indian in the Cupboard, Little Shop of Horrors, Death at a Funeral, and the captivating off-Broadway one-man stage show In and of Itself. In the episode, Brian and Frank discuss trusting your instincts and the importance of craft and engage in a heated debate about the blank page. Keep watching to see how it unfolds. Now, I read once that your parents were puppeteers, and then when we were out once, you said, well, they weren't really puppeteers. So what, what's the deal? I think it's important to know um, how a person starts and how young they start. I think that has a real impact on the way they produce work. They were puppeteers in um, Antwerp, Belgium, before the war. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, um, the, the, the puppets were made by my father, carving wood, and his... Uh, his, uh, at that time, it wasn't his wife. She, my mom uh, was costuming him before they even got married. And his grandfather helped him also. And, um, and actually, I have a, a Hitler puppet here that's in my living room here uh, that they did. Uh, and they had to bury it uh, during the war as they escaped the Nazis down to North Africa. Uh, wow. Because if they found a, if the Nazis found a puppet in their of Hitler, they'd probably get killed. So they unburied it after the war. And actually, the Smithsonian's called me to ask for it, but I haven't had a chance to get back to them yet. So they were legitimate puppeteers. When they came to the United States in 1951, when my mom and him and me and my brother, my older brother by about almost two years, came to the United States uh, through Ellis Island uh, and from Belgium. Uh, I was about five, my brother was about seven. But during that time period, it, he, they were never performing puppets. Okay. They were never performing puppets. During that time period, they were really trying to, I think, survive in this country. So that uh, makes sense. And then, and then when they settled down a bit more, they didn't then either. It became more of a social thing. 
and, and also a supporter of, of that art. Uh, but so they, I don't remember them ever giving a puppet show. So it wasn't like they just immigrated, they were running, right? Oh, yeah, they, ra they ran from uh, the Nazis from Belgium. Okay. Uh, my father was in, uh, he was a window decorator. Uh, in other words, he, would, uh, he was a sign painter, and he also uh, dressed the mannequins and, and, uh, and was in the window there in Belgium one day. And the bomb dropped, and the whole the whole glass was shattered in front of him. You know, wow. but he knew he had to get out. Uh, he was very smart. Here, because because what I'm wondering about is your foundation. But everybody comes at this from a different place, and that foundation matters. And sometimes the foundation is um, just a set of experiences that then help people later on when they figure out what they want to do, and they're like, "Oh, all of this was rehearsal for that," or "All of this was a foundation that I'm building this on." So when you say you were performing, uh, I w I'd like to know what you were doing, what made you perform. Um, I know that uh, being a puppeteer was not something you wanted to do, right? You, you also wanted to direct and, right? So, so why were you being a puppeteer if that's not what you wanted to do? You know, when I was, I don't know, 10 years old or something like that, I remember, I remember enjoying making like robots out of, cardboard boxes, big boxes we'd have, you know, things like that. So I, I enjoyed that, but that wasn't kind of a puppet thing. And uh, there was a Howdy Doody puppet, and I thought, oh, hell, I'll string it. And I used bad string, and my father showed me how to string it. Um, and then I, those marionettes I was working with, not hand okay. puppets. And uh, then I, uh, then I started to, created a small variety show for myself and then I, I did birthday parties and uh, all around the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, now you're telling me what you did. I want to know why you did it. Okay. Well, my foundation is based on low self-esteem. Okay. Uh, as a kid, I had low self-esteem. Now, I'm saying this after years of shrink work. I didn't know it then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Well, can I ask... And you can always say, I don't want to answer that question. Do you have any idea where that came from? Which? Having low self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it's pretty, it gets pretty deep into my parents and how they were damaged. Oh, sure. Okay. And all of our parents are damaged, and we are damaged, and bring some of that damage unknowingly to our own kids. Mm -hmm. you know? And so it, it's, it's through their own damaged childhood and their own damaged upbringing uh, they didn't see that they were damaging me. Of course. As happens in many, many families. Probably um, every yeah. family on some level. Every right? family. Yeah. So as an adult, I, I, I forgive them. I understand that. But because of the damage, and I don't mean damage as far as physically. I mean, by no means. I mean, they had their needs, emotional needs, to be, especially my mom, who needed to be recognized uh, as a great mom. And that was most important than anything else. And as a result, I became a pleaser. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. so, and I, I subsumed myself for many okay. years. Okay. And so that was the damage. And so I felt, well, the real me is not worthwhile. I've got to be the other me. And then I would imagine looking back on it, uh, doing puppets was a, a way to please my family, my, my parents, 
But I think more than anything else, there was something in me that wanted to express myself. And I think more than anything else, it was a safe way to express myself. Because okay. if I was an actor, they would reject me. But if I was doing puppets, I was underneath there and they wouldn't see me. They'd reject the puppet, not me. Right. Okay. So I think it was a safer way without me knowing it. Right. I think that was a safer way for me to grow. And then as I was in the San Francisco Bay Area, I never wanted to be a puppeteer, but I kept on making 25 bucks, 35, 45 bucks a show, doing from parking lots to churches to bazaars to, to birthday parties to, you know, from three people to a thousand people, you know. So it was, it was a great training ground as a performer. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then, uh, I never want to be a puppeteer. I actually want to be a journalist. And so I would have stayed in Oakland, California. And my idea was hopefully be a columnist in Oakland. And, uh, I took journalism course and then, uh, halfway through that at a community college, I wasn't smart enough to go to a regular college. Uh, and halfway through that, uh, Jim remembered me or had, had me in mind from a performance he saw when I was 17 years old. These the Puppeteers of America have these conferences, and I never went to them. I don't go to them at all. But that particular one, there was a contest, and my parents wanted to go. It was very close to where we lived. So I did a performance, and I uh, won the contest. And Jim, uh, who was then probably about 26 with no beard, uh, he came and talked to me. And uh, uh, then two years later, uh, after I took my two-month rucksack youth hostel trip to Europe, I, uh, he, I came home and started journalism, and then he asked me to come try it for six months, and that's what happened. Wow. So you sort of, uh, um, you got uh, almost drafted into be <laughs> to, to being a... It was, it was always, I had to prom I promise, I didn't have to, I promised my, my parents I'd continue school mm -hmm. and, uh, while I was trying out just trying it for six months. I had no intention of staying. And so I went to CCNY and continued, continued with philosophy and history and took a film course even. But I was learning so much from Jim uh, and, and uh, all the commercial work we were doing and everything else that after about a, a, a six months of that, taking uh, the subway from uh, the village all the, all the way up to CCNY and 160th Street or something, um, I, I, I just was... Uh, in learning and enjoying learning from Jim and I just stopped school. You know, mm -hmm. it's not, I'm not proud of it, but this is what happened, you know. Well, it, it, it sort of reminds me of uh, what happened to me with, with the mentor that I had in that um, it really became, that was my education, working for this uh, this man who, who took me in when I was young. He took, I was about 13 um, and I got to work on commercials, which was a big deal to me at 13 to see my stuff on TV and, and all of that. But it was one of those things. There are certain people that hit you at the right time. I think you're open. Um, if I had maybe later, I would have thought I knew stuff I didn't know or whatever, but it was the right moment. Um, and those people are invaluable. It sounds like Jim was certainly one of those people for you, if not the person in that way. And here's what I found interesting when you talk about having low self-esteem and you talk about hiding behind the puppet. I remember you said uh, uh, to me once that you didn't want to talk when you were performing with Jim, right? For a while. It's not that right? I didn't want to. I, I was too scared to. You were too scared. Well, that's what I mean. You were too scared to, to talk. Now, that's 
difficult. Now, when you say scared, you mean uh, people will think I, I mimed everything to Jim. No, too scared to do the characters' voices. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's what I mean. So too scared to do the characters' voices, which I'm sure won't even make sense to people when they look at you from this end of history versus <laughs> at that point in your life. I find that interesting because, um, and Jim and Jim said he, you said he was going to fire you if you didn't start doing well, this? He, didn't, he, was, he was losing faith in me until finally after four years of not doing voices, he forced me to do it on, a, on an Albert TV special. I remember, you know. Okay, so he forced you into it, which is really fascinating because you were using your puppets to hide, right? You felt like you didn't have a voice, right? Yeah, or you, you know, couldn't use your voice. It's interesting. While that, while I was, what I'm thinking in a way, is while I had that low self-esteem, that was connected a great deal to my growing up period in Oakland, California, and my family. Mm -hmm. When I left and I joined Jim, the low self-esteem was still there. Right. But because of the accomplishments that I was doing, I think the esteem is rising. Okay. At the same time. Okay. So, I if if after four years people wanted me to do voices and I was home, I wouldn't do it. But because of over the four, four years of rising esteem because of the accomplishments, then I think I could do it. And so, it, it was a uh, the more I worked with Jim, the more my esteem rose as a puppeteer. But the the less I wanted to do puppetry. Okay, all right. Now, because because puppetry, I was hiding, and as the esteem grew, grew, I didn't want to hide anymore. That makes perfect sense. In craft, there was something that transcended the actual thing you were doing. Was there something in puppeteering that you were learning about? performance about acting about directing about directing actors about being vulnerable was there something in puppeteering that prepared you for the next phase of your career the live performance for years and years yeah you know you don't have an opportunity to have live performance with, with a thousand people or three kids sitting in front of you uh, it, you know it's uh, uh, that was extraordinary training so in I would imagine to some degree uh, as opposed to starting out as a performer and an actor, not knowing what an audience really feels, the audience has always been inside me because I've, it's been ingrained for all those years of performing in front of, in front of people. So that, I think, helped, helped me a great deal. Hmm. And what was it that you were learning from Jim? Oh, God, everything. I mean, uh, I learned, like most of us, you, you saw the, the Muppet Stick, I mean, the Muppet Guys Talking documentary, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it, was, it was a combination of learning how to do the Muppets, which is a big, 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 long road. Uh, and it was a combination of uh, learning a new way of life from Jim. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim really was uh, someone who we looked at as a singular human being who approached life differently than other people. And so I think it was a combination of craft and life and... and 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 spirit those things that we learned from jim it's funny you know about mentors you know i bet you feel the same way i mean hundreds and hundreds of years ago you know uh, and it's unfortunate it's no well fortunately also it's not the case but you know there there are all the apprentices that they had to sign on for seven years 
mm-hmm. uh, and they lived in closet, broom closets and things like that. Right. But by God, they were fantastic after seven years. I think uh, uh, some people just ain't good at book learning, and I'm one of them, okay? Yeah. I, I learn empirically. Right. When I read, I, 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 I'll learn in snatches. I won't remember all the, the whole friggin' book. You know, yeah. I'll just, I'll just, my mind will recall things like I'm reading. Now, I mean, I, I tended to be an autodidact, and so I, you know, I, I, I didn't read a curriculum course, but I read those things that interested me, and, and that is, that's, you know, the, the very first things in the world that interested me. And that, uh, that has value. It has more value for people who actually can learn that way. I'm right. Not, but the empirical value I have, it, it's not like I remember things in mind, but it, it, it sticks in my bones, the crap. Yep, yep. And so yep. That's, how, that's how my knowledge uh, affects me more, where I, by doing, and imagine it happens with many people. Uh, I wish I could learn more uh, and, uh, from, from reading, because I love the stuff I'm reading, but I, after I'm reading various books now, and I know I only remember maybe an eighth of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas doing something, it will be my bones. Right. That makes perfect sense. I, I, and I value people who, the, the reverse, who actually can, who are acad- academics who can really, you know, who really have that ability. It's extraordinary. It's, it's interesting because I, I think both ways or however many ways of learning again have their advantages and disadvantages and sometimes i i have uh, met people who have a lot of uh book learning but can't actually do a thing can't actually do anything um as a matter of fact in um the movie the edge um david mamet wrote uh that um anthony hopkins and um uh, alec baldwin are in it and 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 uh Anthony Hopkins plays this guy who is really good at reading books and retaining information. But at one point he says, uh, yeah, I can retain all these facts, but I, putting them to any practical use is another matter. Like he doesn't know how to do that, like, which is what the story ends up being about. And I think that is often true um, that people like that know who to quote, know, you know what I mean? They know those kinds of things. But when it comes to doing things, it, it's a different thing. And it's a different I think I was a, a little limiting to surgeons as I, as I was listening to you because, of course, surgeons have to read, you know, volumes of material. But in conjunction with that, they have to also have to practice on pigs and human corpses right. and yeah. craft. So uh, I, I don't mean that uh, they that – I'm the kind of person who needs to only do pigs. <laughs> okay, right, sure. They're, they have a much harder job to do both. And yet, actually, when it gets down to it, after a certain amount of time, like any craft, I believe, if you do it long enough, like a surgeon, at that point, it is in your bones, and you know so much that you're ready for those things that are surprises. We talked a little bit about what you learned from Jim, not specifically, but you were saying that he taught you, like, it, what did he teach you about yourself? It was a wide swath. First of all, he didn't teach. Jim never taught. He never told us what to do, ever. Sure. But, but he did teach. One right? learned from the person he was. Yeah. Uh, you, you observed, you lived through that, and, and that's how you learned. Uh, 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 and I certainly learned about myself, not because of him, but 
through him. He, Did he know? Try and teach me anything. Was Jim completely unaware that he was teaching people's stuff, or was he doing it slyly and letting you pick up whatever you picked up? I think he was letting us pick up whatever he picked up, but he was not doing it slyly. That was not his intent. Okay. His intent was to live his life and express himself and uh, be with his family. There was no uh, agenda. No, it's, it's art. I mean, here's an example. I would b- want to borrow the car when I was 16 or something, and my dad, you know, uh, of course, the first answer is no. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'd go to my mother and ask her to soften him up, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and, then, and, and then usually what happens is he says no, then I get the car and five bucks for him. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> but usually, and then he would say, remember, I'll take roots such and such and such and such and such and such. And remember, be careful on those such and such and such and such. And then, so that's how I kind of grew up, you know. Uh, and then I got to Jim's, I think it was, we had an old place in 53rd Street, just two rooms. And it was just the four of us, Jim, Jerry, me and Don. And Jim had an old Porsche at that time. And I was going to go driving just to take a drive outside the, the city, I think. He said, take the Porsche. I said, what? Yeah, you, you can have it. If you want to use that, here's, here, here it is. Here's the keys. And that's wow. it. He didn't talk about, didn't say no, didn't say make sure to do this. He just yeah. said, yeah, sure. Now, that's who he was. Mm-hmm. That opened up my eyes. I mean, my God, there's another way to live. But he didn't see that as a lesson. He just said, yeah, that's who I am. I think all of us were... Uh, changed by Jim uh, because of the man, the man he was. It, it's uh, it, he was a very singular, singular individual. Of course, I didn't know it at the time because I was just busy working every day. You know? Right. Unfortunately, that's the way it is often. Yeah, you don't know it until later. But I, yeah. you know, but I also was a is you know it was a it was a combination of having an extraordinary time with because I love the guys I'm working with. But on the other hand. Since my self-esteem was growing, the more I worked, the more frustrated I was only a puppeteer. That makes sense. And I wanted to get out of the market and I wanted to do other things. But it was Jim who uh, taught me, uh, not taught me, but asked me to do film. And uh, I learned by uh, shooting a lot of, you know, thousands of footage of uh, uh, 16 mil bullocks. And then I said, I was editing and I was editing original, uh, actually it was, yeah, uh, negative and you know, and so, and then Jim asked me to co-direct Dark Crystal with him, uh, and uh, that was like essentially now a $200 million movie. So I was uh, very, I came through the back door, but it was very, you know, very unusual uh, situation for me, but it was all because of Jim. As a performer, you had been directed a lot, right? You had seen directors work. They tried to direct me. Okay. <laughs> what? Okay. What, why was that difficult? Was it difficult for them to direct you? Or was it difficult, difficult it for you to difficult, take direction? But, but this is the good thing about being a, a, being a director, having done so many films, and being a performer, because I know the tricks. Uh-huh. Uh, because, you know, some, a lot of directors are total twits, and they have no idea how to talk to actors. They have no That's concept. true. And uh, some will say the right thing at the right time, and others will come up to you and say something. And I used to try to be a good boy and do it but then I just realized okay so I I listened I listened I said sure gotcha and I did the totally reverse and they said that's great <laughs> you know so so I you know I I've learned how to uh, what to listen to and what not to and and uh, 
it may be a bit, uh, maybe assumed by others as arrogant, but I see it as experience, you know. I'd been to a lot of film festivals and had films and film festivals and all of that. And what's interesting I love your, is... I love your white face. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, it was very, under, under, very underplayed. It was nice. Oh, thank you. That was, yeah, I, thank you. That, that uh, it was hard to get those performances. Well, uh, uh, you, you good, did a good job beating them down. Thank you. Uh, you put clown makeup on people and they want to be funny. And so... Everybody always wants to be funny, clown makeup or not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's now, true. I have, to play, I have to play all kinds of tricks to make sure that, that they're trying not to be funny and that's when they'll be funny. Yeah. You know, Charlie Chaplin had a trick, and then we'll go back. But Charlie Chaplin had a trick. Um, he was doing something. He was performing in a movie, doing his thing, and then the crew laughed. And it was something that wasn't supposed to be funny, and he said, why did you laugh? And um, they said, well, because before you were doing it like this and this way, they, and he said, oh, you're throwing me off, right? <laughs> because that's not going to be funny to an audience because they have no idea what happened before or what I would have done. So he, he started hiring people who didn't think he was funny. Yeah, so I, that I, he, I, I never believe in crew laughter. Ever. No, it's not real. It, yeah. But, it, uh, it, 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 it may be legitimate and actually made them funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. It doesn't mean the audience is, is going to laugh. Yeah, because it's in a particular, it's in a different context, right? It's in a very different context. Oh, I really know that person. It's funny to watch them do that. They're not that way, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Charlie Chaplin would find people who didn't think he was funny or who were so used to his humor. Well, that know, was, uh, when I've auditioned people, unfortunately, because to a degree, I've been known as a comedy director, They'll come in, the expectation is that they've got to do comedy. Mm -hmm. And so they'll read and they'll push it. And what I'll do, and it always works, is say, okay, listen, you're not in a Frank Oz movie. Read it again. You're in a Martin Scorsese movie. Okay? Mm. Read it like Martin Scorsese movie. And they read it, and it's funny. Oh, that's great. That's a, oh, that's a really good way to think it, about it. It, it, it. You have to kind of you have to kind of broom away the expectations, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I learned from my mentor, Bruce, was uh, to have a child's curiosity. So sometimes, because we had to recreate things, like um, we would have to make a, a fake sunset or we'd have to do something like that. So we just spend our time looking at sunsets because we had to, you know, or he would just notice things uh, as reference for the future. And he's like, look at the way that ant is doing whatever, or look at the way, you know, and, and it, it sort of gave me permission to never lose that kind of curiosity. Um, and that kind of fascination with, uh, you know, it's like, I always say that when, when I was a kid, which was true that I spent a lot of time looking at clouds, literally looking at clouds, a ton of time doing that. And I, I thought I found a way that to make that my job. I found a way to make my job staring at clouds. Um, there was clouds and stars were my favorite things to look at. And, I, hmm. and, and, um, and I don't think that ever went away. I just think it's, you know, it's focused. It's a, you know, but it really, I'm just staring at clouds going, well, what if this, what if clouds were a race of people? What would like, I'm just staring at clouds. Um, I think it's more than curiosity. I, I think it's the very thing that people lose sadly when they're, when they get about, when the world, real world hits them, which is around, uh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, and that's a sense of wonder. Well, okay, yeah, sure. I think you're more involved in wonder than curiosity, you know? Mm. 
uh, that's my opinion. I, I think it's curiosity to me speaks more of the mind and wonder seems speaks more of the soul. You know what? That's probably true. My take. No, that's probably true. I remember I like blowing bubbles. I've always liked them. I like, I kind of relax. I'll go out and blow bubbles. And I remember I was talking to a woman about it and I said, uh, you know, you know, bubbles, it's fun. And she goes, well, I liked it when I was a kid. Yeah. And I was like, you can't like it now. You can't still like it. Like, I didn't know I couldn't like it anymore. You know, uh, it's yeah. still it's still fascinating to me. Well, so that's wonder, sad for her. It is sad for her. It is yeah. sad for her. I yeah. Um, also, I I just think that in a job that is a creative one, and, and when you have a creative job, you usually have a that's that doesn't turn off when it's not when it's time not to you know you're not working. You're still always that person. You know what I mean? I don't turn I don't, off. I don't see how that's possible to turn off. No, unless, I don't think. Unless you're a, board of, a bogus creative. Yeah. I think if you're real creative, it doesn't turn off. It's always on. And, and when I say creative, I, I, think, I think we are not fair to other people like accountants and uh, janitors and everybody else. I truly believe those are creatives also. They have to, oh, be sure. to do their particular job that is not taught to them, that they have had experience. They, ha they get to a point where they have to be creative to solve their problems. So I, I always believe that we are putting ourselves in an ivory tower, that we are the creatives. And I don't believe that's true. I think maybe we, we spend more of our time and our energy, and that is our focus in our life is creativity, but it doesn't mean that others are not also creative. I also think it has to do with um, labeling. Uh, mm. Uh, a janitor is not creative, obviously. Uh, a songwriter is obviously creative. Right. A, an accountant is not creative. That's that. It's an accountant. Right. A, uh, a writer is a creative. I just I think labeling is uh, is uh, limits people, uh, and I think they have more inside them than they think. I think that's true. It's interesting about about uh, about how we have reactions that don't that other people assume are, are well let me just say when i've auditioned I, i've auditioned hundreds and hundreds of actors and by the time the actors get to my to, to me they've been hundreds of them have been filtered out by my cast and sure right so the people i talk to are, are all talented right so if i say i'm sorry you're not i, I i'm not going to take you for this part it has nothing to do with the talent. Right. Nothing. nothing. Mm -hmm. Usually at that point, it's all about, I see it differently. You right. could be brilliant, and I could be wrong, but I happen to be the director. Right. So, so uh, it, it, you know, I always tell people, hadn't, it's only because of the way I see it. It's not because you're not right for it. Yeah. It's, it's not fair. Yeah. But that's the way it is. You know, the audition process is so painful. I mean, I was trying to be an actor in New York for years, and I, was, I went through all those auditions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was just awful. It was being waiting outside for two hours with a whole bunch of people and, and then going in and somebody reading it once and saying thank you. And, I mean, I, 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 hit, I hit my – I finally said, screw this. I can't take this anymore because there was a bird's eye audition that I went to. And I said, okay, that's it. No more. And I stopped completely because mm -hmm. of – it's just so silly what I, what I tell you. So as a, as a result, in, in a way, because I have a performer, what I, I know how they feel. And so whenever there's an audition, 
and people way outside. The first thing I do is I go outside and say, hey, thanks for coming, guys. I'm Frank Oz. I'm the director. If we're going to be, we may be a little bit late. I apologize for you, but, but just, you know, we're really glad you came here. So they know that I'm not a monster. They know this. They, they yeah. recognize it. It's so important, you know, because that's, I wish somebody had done that to me as an actor, you know? Mm-hmm. Talking about this idea of bravery, right? That there's a certain amount of bravery. And so um, when you talk, and yeah. a lot of bravery. A lot of bravery. I, I have no interest in being an actor whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I've always taken the opportunity as a director to get in front of the camera to remember how frightening it is for an actor. And right. it helped me direct the next actor I work with because it rem- I, I, I realize how frigging frightening it is to be on, on, on there. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's frightening. And you've got to be brave to do it. So I think there's a, you know, I, I think your, your idea of bravery is, is, is inherent in the craft. Yeah, it has to be there. You know? Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you said something once. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah, to, to me. Uh, you probably said it to other people, but you, you were saying, we were just talking about our work, and you said, well, my job is to bring things to life. Not my job. Well, life. That's okay, okay, here. okay. To bring things to life. Now, that looks a lot of different ways, right? You, uh, a whole movie, an entire movie, or a character, or whatever. I know that, when you are creating characters, one of the things you look for are these struggles, these, right, these, these struggles that, that characters have. Um, as, um, can you explain that, that process a little bit? And where did you pick that up? Was that just in, where did that come from and, and how does it work? I think, I think two things. Number one is I, I think struggle creates a character in human beings. I think without it, you don't create that character. Uh, so that that's in a, in, a, in life. I believe one must struggle. And I but think what, can you can you explain that a little? Can you unpack that just a little bit? What do you mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, if it's easy, you're not testing yourself. You're not finding different layers and depths and possibilities of yourself. You don't know if you're going to rely on things in yourself. You don't, you know, the struggle brings all those things out, the things that you're weak at, you're strong at, things you've got to try harder at. If it's easy, you don't have an opportunity to get those layers. It's done. Right. And you're not interesting. Mm-hmm. You, do, you don't connect with others who are, because most of these people in the world are struggling. Okay. Right. Whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's psychic, whatever it is. In order to connect to those people, and that's our job as storytellers, as directors, right? One has to experience life the same way those other people experience life. Right. And so, struggle as a job, all my characters, every single one of them struggle. And in my life, I tell my kids, I want to help you, but I don't want to take away your struggle. You have yeah. to struggle. I get so that. Struggle is. is Without it, uh, we'd be uh, um, little rich kids. Uh, if, if one doesn't struggle in life, I don't think one's a full human being. Mm. So can you explain how, though, the idea, like when you, um, I know we talked a little bit on email about um, the idea of the blank page. Now, you say you never face a blank page. I right. don't exactly think that's true. You're wrong. Here's what I mean. <laughs> well, maybe. But here's what I mean. If I pick up uh, a Cookie Monster or a Yoda or something, for me, that's a blank page. 
because a blank page isn't blank either, right? Mm-hmm. A blank, a blank. Mm-hmm. Pa- what I mean is, if I pick up Cookie Monster, I don't come up with Cookie Monster. I don't come up with that character. That character doesn't come out of me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even if, even if it was a great character, even if I came up with a great character, it would not be your Cookie Monster if there was no such character as Cookie Monster, right? Right. Right. And so, what I mean is, there's something. For instance, if I'm starting with a blank page, a blank page, again, isn't blank. I have something I want to say. I have something I want to... I'm not starting with a blank page either. Um, there's all, a reason I sat down. All true writers start with a blank page. I don't think they do. Tell me. Well, I don't think they do because I think they have something... There's a reason they sat down to write. There's a reason uh, they sat... They have a reason to, set, to write, and they're facing a blank page. It's not written for them already on the page. Yeah, but so, but have you ever created a character that wasn't first written? Like, did you pick up Piggy and was she written first? Sure. Okay. But there was a Piggy. There was a physical character. Yeah, I still think that's blank. I still think that's blank page. I still think it's a blank page. I still think that that. So okay, so let's talk about. We don't have to talk about Piggy specifically, but. Whether it's a blank page or whether it's not, <laughs> the uh, but you still. Uh, how does uh, finding a character struggle? I don't know where you start. How do you start? What, how does this process happen? What is it? You, you somebody says here's Piggy or here's Yoda. What happens then? For you, it happens all differently, different ways. There's no okay. one. Is well, um, no one. Way. I mean, I'll give you the the example that I've said many, many times. Uh, I don't want what you've said many, many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting. Okay, if it's interesting, go uh, ahead. I'll, I'll go another example then. Okay. Uh, in, uh, now, but now I've got that out there, and people are going to be like, "What was he going to say?" No, so no. now you have. Yeah. <laughs> now that's I'll, out there, just let people. I'll include it. I mean, uh, okay. Piggy, Piggy was there, and she was just a uh, a non-essential character. Mm-hmm. And uh, Richard Hunt, who passed away from AIDS, or Dear Richard, who did Scooter and who did so many great characters, uh, he had her first, and then I had her, and uh, for the first two or three weeks, and then I said, hey, you know, I got an idea for her, and he said, okay, go ahead and take her. So I t- took her, and then I, I think I, uh, there was one particular bit that I, uh, that was written, and I, and she got very, uh, she, somehow for some reason I don't know what it is inside me, but it just she was attracted to the frog and she also was very dramatic, melodramatic, and that kind of kicked, kicked in there. Uh, and so that started. And on the other hand, there was another time when I had a, a scene with Kermit and I was in a rehearsal room and uh, I was supposed to slap Kermit and, as Piggy and I have no idea why I did this. But instead of slapping, uh, I gave him a karate chop. Mm-hmm. Now, that solidified the character for me because okay. this melodramatic pig who loved this frog, but also the karate chop meant that you know she was coy on the outside. She was pretending to be feminine. When inside, she's a truck driver. And so okay. that karate chop said, don't mess with me, but she can't live that way because her frog wants her to be feminine. So she's got to play feminine. So it's, it's, it, it, it really, that, that's how that character came up. 
Bert, and this is what I was going to say before, Bert came up because uh, he was boring. I mean, I, it was, you know, Jim had the little cute little uh, Ernie and, and he was delightful and, and he had hands and everything. Bert had like a, a rod and his head could go like that. That's it. Yeah. So it was boring as hell and I was just dying because I thought this is so, I want and I realized, okay, great. So I'll make him boring. So I made him the most boring character in the world. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I made him, you know, like his favorite color is gray. Uh, and, and he, and he, he, you know, he, uh, he studies the various tributaries of the various rivers of the world and, you know, as boring as possible. So that, 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 that created that character. And then each character, things happened that I wasn't aware of. Like Grover, I have no idea how it came at Grover. Grover just came about organically and I have no idea how it happened. Except that he's very much a part of me. He's probably the strongest one of me. And Fozzie, Fozzie too. Okay. So there's there's a level of and they were not blank pages. The workshop made those characters for me. Yeah, they were not I, blank pages at all. I just I just think that that uh, well, at the most, it feels like it might be a writing prompt, right? <laughs> right, right. That because what you what, what you what it sounds like what you've first of all you've learned how to trust your impulses you've learned how to trust those um i think that takes that for a long time you didn't trust your impulses i think it takes a long time to do that and i actually think that um for the most part people have to have enough craft to do that i think when people try to do it without craft they don't understand their impulses enough uh or where they're coming from on some level i think that you To, to say, oh, Bert's boring, I'm going to go with that. It, you, it's, there's a danger in being, in like, deciding I'm going to have a boring character. Because you just can't do that. You can't right. have a character. What you make sure of is your boring character is funny. Right. If it's not funny, it's only going to be boring. <laughs> right, yeah. And that's what I mean, to be able to trust. And that's my, my point is that you could have had, right, uh, a boring, like, you know he's boring, but you don't want the audience to be bored, right? Yeah. And so that's, a, that's a, a strange line to walk. Well, I've, uh, I've made, we've made mistakes too. I mean, there's a character in Sesame Street years ago called Professor Hastings. Uh -huh. And Professor Hastings I did, and uh, he only lasted a few, a few shows uh, because he was boring. He'd, fall, he'd, he'd start talking, falling asleep all the time. And it just was freaking boring. And so we... We, we have a whole section of dead Muppets. She's part of the dead Muppets section that, mm -hmm. that were never used. So, you know, you, you learn things that way. You, you, this is how you learn. Right. I, I still feel like we haven't unpacked the struggle part. So, um, well, my yes. Fault. Blame me. <laughs> here. So when you talked about Bert, you talked about, it's actually, I, I really like how you talked about that. Um, but what is his struggle? His struggle is to live his life the, w the way he wants to live it. And he never can because of Ernie is always, he's living with Ernie. And that's right. He, Bert would be very happy just sitting there and reading books all day. Mm -hmm. How he'd like to live. He can't because Ernie is always annoying the hell out of him. He's struggling just to be himself. 
Right. That's all he wants to do is be himself. He's not asking anything else. And if you if you look at Bert and Ernie, there'll be often scenes start with him reading a book. Right. And that's what he wants to do. His struggle is trying to be himself. Uh, is it is it only Ernie? I guess that's mostly only Ernie that's the problem for him, right? Duh. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the only. I mean, if it wasn't for Ernie, he could live in peace and quiet and wake up and do his boring things by himself. Mm-hmm. But he can't. He can't. He can't create his own world because within that world is somebody who intrudes all the time. Knowing that helps you bring that character to life how like how does that manifest itself in a performance i think through frustration okay i think as the frustration becomes funny if you can make it funny right that's the thing you can't try yeah that's you can't i mean you got it's like the old thing leave comedy to the professionals i mean when i work with eddie murphy or steve martin or billy whatever it is these guys are inherently funny right when they try to be funny they don't try. They, they have a sense of the comedy, and they all come from different directions. They all are sure. different. They innately are funny in the manner in which they are funny. They're each funny differently. Right. And so they, don't, they have ideas how to be funny, but they don't try to be funny. Right. And they're already funny. Right. Anybody who tries is going to fail. You, the worst thing to do is to see somebody sweat. And, 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 and when people try to be funny, they'll fail. Right. I can't accept people who talk about how to do comedy. I can't accept it. I just, I, I, so I, my, my talk was how I didn't know a damn thing about comedy. And mm-hmm. I don't. And I don't want to know. Mm-hmm. Because if you do know, then there's nothing to discover. Right. I remember an editor once, when I was interviewing an editor for a, for a comedy movie I was doing, I forgot what. He said, oh, I know a lot about comedy. And I ran for the hills. I said, forget it. You know, we don't want to know. That's limiting if we know. Mm-hmm. The idea is not to know. And then react. You right. Know? Well, I think what people forget if to one, do. If one has innate comedy in him. Right. But I, I, I also think what, what happens is that people forget to be honest. Yes. Right. They and that's where to the be, comedy comes from. Right. So they forget to be honest, and they think that comedy is being dishonest. Yeah. That's where they make the mistake. Yeah, there's, when I do dramas and the comedies, it's the same intent as honesty, both, both times. It makes no yeah. difference whether I work with De Niro or when I work with Billy, uh, Billy uh, you know, I, or Steve. I, it's, it's all about honesty, but it's honesty to the world in which those particular characters inhabit. Sure. Not honesty to our world. It's not honesty to... A, a world outside of the movie. It's only honest to the world in which those characters inhabit. Sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, of course. But honesty is 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 all one works for, and it, it it sounds, you know, it sounds highfalutin to be honest, but that really is the basis of comedy for me. But my biggest tool as a director is doing three or four takes in a row, because every time a director does a take and says, okay, cut. The actor then has to listen to people and can't listen to himself and his own instincts. He's got his, he can't, he can't keep his rhythm going because we asshole directors will have to say something to him. And 
and they start thinking too much. Mm -hmm. And what you don't want is an active think. Right. That is such a, a tool for me to, to allow the actor to continue his rhythms and not give him time to think, but be the character, you know? Right. Um, there's an there's a interview with Shirley MacLaine where she's talking. Uh, I mean, she's not the first person to say this, but it was interesting how she said it. And she said, she goes, acting's not really that hard. You just have to forget yourself. Mm -hmm. That, of course, is very hard. Right, right. But what you're what you're doing is uh, is making people forget themselves, right? Yeah, you're you're forcing them not to think. Yeah, thinking is not necessarily the best thing. Sometimes it is, but but well, it's always the best thing in life. In heightened situations, we are reacting, right? We aren't thinking really. When you say when you say heightened situations, like what? Well, I mean, what I mean is you're, you're talking about this guy trying to stop a, you know, most dramatic conflict or comedic conflict is going to be a heightened situation generally. Not always. You know, people don't understand that what might work in a storyboard and what works on a page does not work on the floor. Right. It just doesn't always work on the floor. Right. And I've had so many situations where, uh, you, you know, things... I, I see it, and I, it's not working. I'll say, okay, let's. Let, I mean, name dropping. I'll do some name dropping. I was doing a, I was doing a show a movie called The Score, and uh, Bob De Niro and Angela Bassett. It was a scene between the two of them, and we did the scene, and I realized it's not working. It doesn't work. It doesn't doesn't sing. So I said to my first, I said, okay, let the crew take an hour and a half off. Just take them off. And I, and I asked Bob and Angela, and I just had me, Bob, Angela, and my first AD and my uh, script continuity person. And I said, guys, let's just improv this scene. And then what we did is they say, hey, that was good. Uh, Bob, did you feel good about saying that? Yeah, okay, well, let's write that down. Okay, how about Angela, how'd you, how about that? That was good. You didn't like that? Okay, let's, we'll use that. Okay, how about Bob, Angela, you like that one? And that's how we wrote the scene. Mm -hmm. And it bang. Because I'd rather... I'd rather be behind schedule than shoot something dead. Right. That makes sense. Uh, you know, Mark Rydell used to say that um, he, he would tell the crew, he'd say, look, this is the deal. All of this stuff, the lights, the camera, the mic, all he goes, all of this exists to record a moment, a real moment. That's why it's here. So when the actors are ready to go, we are going. I'm not waiting for makeup and hair. I'm not waiting for art department. I'm not waiting for anybody. We're here to get this moment. Exactly. And that's the most important thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of people um, dismiss that. But this idea that you're looking for the truth in a performance, the honesty in moments, um, and that you're giving something to your actors so they have something they can... Um, they're getting the feedback they need to know the work they're doing. I think that's harder. Um, and so people, uh, what I've noticed is that the directors that I see now are, it really started with MTV and, uh, and commercial directors getting so much into um, uh, directing feature films where they don't have the chops to get performances, to think about actors, they know how to make it look good. 
Um, and it became way more about, a friend of mine likes to say, at some point, directing became art directing. I think it's deeper than that. I think for many people working with actors, you have to face your own emotions. You have to, you know, and we, especially men, don't like to talk about our emotions and not explore our emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's to a degree what acting is. And right. so it's much easier to, to use the brain and make sure the shot is well as opposed to risking looking inside yourself. Mm. Well, that's the bravery part mm -hmm. that we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. The, the, the how, but, and uh, we talked about this before too, and I think this is interesting. This is part of this idea that um, one of the biggest mistakes and most common mistakes is that people won't go there. They won't go to the deep place. They won't go to the dark place. They have to. They have to, but they won't. They, it's, um, they, they always, not always, but often want to be safe. And yeah. it's like, well, this is not that kind of job. I directed, you, know? you didn't see the off-Broadway show I directed, did you, uh, in and of itself? I wanted to, I, uh, but yeah, I, but you know. We shot a film of it if you want to uh, see I, it. I, I definitely would love to see it. Okay. Uh, so uh, it was a one-man show, and Derek is brilliant. Uh, you know, he had never worked really with a director before. And I asked a lot of him that, and, and, and it, he really, it was valiant how he, how every night he just didn't do the words. He, he waited until the impulse was right to right. say a word. And that was the most important. I, I, I told him, if I catch you acting, I'll kill you. Mm -hmm. What he did was he waited. Yeah. He waited until the honest impulse came every night. And that's why it, to a great degree, it worked. And he said, you know, uh, he asked me, how do, I, how do you know I was going to do this? And I said, I somehow felt you were going to go the distance. And I think that if you don't go the distance, then don't bother me. Right. <laughs> I'm not interested. And I think going the distance, as I'm just confirming what you're saying, I think going the distance is hard for some people, but it's vital. Yeah, I think it's, you know, when, when we actually met was at the EG conference. Right. And um, I, I think I told you that, you know, they, w what happened was I had that's a where, that's, I got to tell your viewers, that's where uh, the EG conference is, is just let them know what it is. It's a, okay. uh, it's a conference where, where all these people who are, who are professionals basically do a, a talk about what their profession is essentially. Okay. Everybody did. Brian's blew the whole place apart. It was the best. Okay, that's all. Oh, thank you. I want to thank kick you. your ass in, play, in case you, <laughs> just in case you know, just playing safe with the editing situation. Oh, okay, thank, thank you. Uh, no, it really was. It was the most memorable thing. Thank you. Uh, well, here's what I was going to say about that, which is that. So backstage, there was a monitor. And I had my slides and I had my notes and we checked it out. We didn't really get a lot of time to, uh, to rehearse. And there are things I like to do when I go on a stage. Um, like, for instance, I always, I feel like I need to make the stage my living room. And so when I have the opportunity, I, when nobody's there, I go up on the stage. I just spend time there. So, and I know how to get on and off, right? Because walking on and off the stage... If you don't, if you've never been on and off of it, it's like you can trip, you can fall, and that throws you off. So I, I, I like to go there. I like also one of the things I do is I go into the audience, 
and I sit in every section, what are they seeing? What are they seeing? What are they seeing? What are they seeing? And I sit there and I take it in. I go up. I, I look at the same it. thing. Do you? Yeah. I do all of that, right? And so I wanted to, okay, I went, went backstage and I said, okay, this is my slide. This is the note. These are my slides. This is the note. Everything was fine. I get out there. I can't see my notes. Different configuration on the monitor out there. So I had no notes. Now, you were there. There were people when there was a technical snafu, they would, uh, they'd run backstage. They'd stop the performance, the presentation, whatever. Uh, we got to get this worked out. And I was like, I, I can't do any of that stuff. I have to go with what's in front of me now. Um, I, I trust that I know basically what I want to say. And I was winging it out there. It was brilliant. Thank you. And that's probably why you relied on your toolbox. Right. Right. And I trusted that it would work. Your, 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 your intellectual toolbox and your emotional toolbox. Right. I was like, as long as I'm honest up here, I'll be okay. Exactly right. And probably it turned out much better than one had you had notes. Probably. Probably. That's where the bravery comes from. Right. But I, had, I learned that from working with enough people who were brave, seeing the work that comes out of it. It's like, well, you just have to be brave. You just have to put it out there. And those people were in my mind when I wrote the memoir that I just wrote. You know, but like think, as you said before, you can be brave as long as you have your toolbox of craft. Yes, you can't do it without it. Right. You can't do it without it. it it's um. It, it's a strange thing because you have to learn all the things and then not think about them. That's right. It's a it's a strange thing, but you you have to not think about it anymore. It, it has to become part of your muscle memory or part of your... Right. Yeah. It's... Um, I mean, I find it... You know, I've done so many TV shows with characters. I mean, from, you know, Academy Awards to Johnny Carson to whatever, or Jay Leno, whatever. And in an odd way, you know, when I do... When I, do, when I did that, it was all ad-lib, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and writers would come to me and say, can you say this? And I tried that, and it didn't work. I think you have to be brave to do what's written to mm. be brave to really think it's going to work oh that's it because when i am on doing the carson show the character i have all i have is an attitude from the beginning of the end that's an attitude everything so i'm open to everything totally open and trust my toolbox and i trust the attitude and to me there's no bravery it's a sense of just being alive and open to huh. me, you have to be brave to believe that actually that shit can work. <laughs> well, that's... Huh. I don't know if that's exactly true. No, but I mean, that's another way to look at it because I, I, I really think, you know, being safe is not brave. And you don't get... My, I, I, I've always said for years, I said, the riskiest thing is to be safe. The safest thing is to be risky. For years. Yeah. And that's true. I think that's definitely true. That there's something about... You can see it with improv. Mm -hmm. One of the things that works in improv, uh, an improv show, is that you know, you know what's happening right there, and that and that it's there's no net, right? The working without a net is always um, fascinating to watch, and sometimes fascinating even when people don't know there's no net there, right? Um, when I would watch Piggy on the Tonight Show, I I didn't know. It, I, I guess I assumed it was ad-lib. I don't, you know, the interesting thing about your characters for me is that I completely believe them. 
I, I know you and I don't talk to you and think, oh, there's Piggy. Oh, there's Grover. They are complete individuals that I believe have a life outside of uh, the television screen or the movie screen or whatever. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly. That's, there's alchemy there that I don't quite understand. Well, you know, if somebody tells me, hey, you did a great job with Piggy, that'd be an insult to me. Mm-hmm. Or Yoda. Right. Oh, you played Yoda great. That'd be terrible. Right. Because my job is to make the character transcendent. Right. Where one doesn't judge. And if I don't make it transcendent and you're judging a performance, then I'm screwed, you know? Yeah. Oh, no, I completely believe all those, those characters exist. In, I, I, you know, there's a part of me, that's not, I'm not lying about there. That's part of me, I believe there's a Yoda out there. Part yeah. of me believes that. I have no idea when people compliment me on the work I do. I can't take the compliment because I have no fucking idea how I do it. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've worked for many, many years and I have a great toolbox, but a lot of people work with toolboxes. And for some reason, I have been able to be, do all these main characters, uh, not just characters, but I mean, the do- dozens of other characters, main characters. I, you know, it's like, I, it's not my doing. I have no idea how I do it. I, I know how I do it, perform it. I don't know how I make it transcendent. Okay. That's what I don't know. I have no idea how to do that. I just, that's weird. These characters have a soul. Mm-hmm. And, and w- when I was writing this memoir, I remember thinking, as I wrote, I have to rip part of my soul off and put it on this page. And there were things that were very painful about that process. But I was also talking about my brother's murder and, and, and things like that and, and uh, my abusive alcoholic father and things like that. I feel like the energy you put in is what comes out. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I don't put it in, it can never come off the page. So I had that, all that energy had to go onto that page. It, it was an almost physical pain. It certainly was often emotional, not because of what I was writing about. Uh, I'm w- aware of the things that have happened in my life and you know, that, that pain is, um, is old and doesn't, um, uh, you know, it's calloused in some ways. Some of it. But sharing it so publicly was the, uh, and going there, as we're talking about, was the, the, the hard part. But I knew that that's what had to happen. And I feel like there's something in your, when you talk about, for instance, a struggle um, can you talk about Miss Piggy's struggle? Because this is sort of what I... Are you okay talking about Miss Piggy's struggle? Sure. sure. I mean, it's, it, it, for her, it's quite simple. I mean, she, she knows she's not this feminine person who, who, who the frog would like. I mean, she has this magnificent obsession with the frog, but her struggle is that she's trying to make him love her, and it's not working. And so she's trying as much as possible to be the woman that she believes he wants her to be, and yet she gets to a point where she can't take it, can't take it, and her true self comes out, and then she karate chops the sucker. Uh, it, it, she's struggling. She's struggling to be the person that other people want her to be. That sounds like you. Oh, sure. Many of so, us. Not now. No, but what not, I'm saying, but here's, what, here's what I'm saying is that where, where maybe it gets transcendent is the, where you come in. 
when it's not with your part of your soul that sure. had that struggle. That's the part I think that's where the transcendence comes from. The part of you that had that struggle because you're revealing it. It's the same thing in any good performance, right? That, yes, that, but at the same time, you know, why is it other people have struggled and have struggled more than I have and have used that struggle in their work and, and it's not, they don't get to that transcendency. I think it's, I think it's something that's undefined myself. Mm, okay. But, but, but you, you may be right. You know, maybe right. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, how, how safe are you when you work? How safe are, do you, do you, it's, are all the guards down or are you keeping part of it back? Are you holding oh, no, back? Nothing, no, nothing back. I, 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 feel, I, I feel think very safe because I'm open to risk. I think most people hold something back, no matter no, I, what they say. I hold nothing back as long as, but there's always a part of me. If I'm doing a, if I'm doing Yoda, it's a whole different deal. That's acting, that's performing. That's not performing. It's, it's kind of, you know, or, or that's bringing somebody to life there. If I'm doing, if I, I used to, I haven't done puppets for about 10 years. If I'm doing cooking or something, I always have to have the performer eye and me saying, is this funny? Is it going too long? Uh, maybe I should cut the next dialogue. You know, that's stuff like that. Right. We'll do that with Yoda. So it, it, it depends on the manner in which I, I, what's required of me. Uh can I ask what you've learned uh, either from other directors or other performers that has informed your career, like um, directors that have given you good direction, directions, directors that have given you bad direction? Well, I, I, I gave myself 10 years to be a director. And, okay. Uh, and I had done a lot of 16 mil bull, bullex work, and I had done a lot of 35 cutting for Jim, and uh, a lot of, you know, and I, I had, and, and when I, and I had performed in many, many movies and situations where I learned from the directors. That's, that was my classroom. Was, I was on the street, you know. Yeah. But I would always ask directors, uh, what's the best advice you have for directing? And they'd say, you know, from wear comfortable shoes. Yeah, that's a, I, th I was going to guess that one. <laughs> get, get some sleep. That's a Spielberg one. He likes that. Wear comfortable that right? shoes. Get yeah. some sleep. And I realize now the worst advice was get coverage oh sure because coverage takes away style and excitement coverage is mm -hmm. meat and potatoes and you've got to take chances you you've got to let shots develop if you don't then you're shooting it in such a way that you know you can edit later on and you're controlling things and the audience does not want you to control them. They want the opportunity to look where they want to look. There's a great story where John Ford in uh, How Green Was My Valley, I think, um, where um, it's a really great shot of uh, a woman's getting married um, and um, there's a carriage and it's in the foreground here, this carriage and people throwing rice at the couple and they're sitting in the carriage, all happy and everything. And there's a man who's in love with her uh, way, way in the background. Um, and uh, he comes out of a church there. He's silhouetted. And he's just this figure back there. Your focus is really on him. Your emotional focus is really on him. And how his, really his heart is breaking. But you don't see him at all. And the, the story is that uh, when John Ford was shooting it, the DP said, I think, I don't know who, maybe it was Greg Tolan. I'm not sure who the DP was. But the DP says, do you want to get a close-up of him? And he said, oh, no, no, they'll just use it. 
Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I have played that game so many times. (laughs) Right? And it plays. It's amazing how it plays. Your heart breaks watching it. That's the trouble. Coverage can deaden something. Can totally deaden. Now, there's a different kind of coverage, especially comedy, because comedy, you're taking a chance every second of the day. You've got to make sure you're covered. But it's a different kind of coverage. It's a coverage for comedy. It's not a coverage for film. Right. It's, and and so it's it's very delicate. It's uh, but you know, as a director, I I don't want to shoot something dead. I just mm-hmm. don't. Rather, I don't want to cover. I mean, there's some shots I've done, uh, like Good Rotten Scandals. I know uh, Michael Ballhaus, who's a great cinematographer, and, I, and he's, he's shot two of my movies. So sad he's gone. And. Um, and I, there was a scene where uh, we're outside in, in uh, Villefranche or Nice, and uh, I think Michael Caine is coming out with Glenn Headley, and then there's a beat and everything, and then Steve Martin, who is pretending that he's not able to walk, is being carried out by a bellman, okay? And then they put him in the car and everything. And Michael said, you got to get coverage of that. And I said, no, you can't get coverage of that. You can't. If you get coverage of that, it won't be funny, period. Right. Because they'll sense the control. They, they want to see the, the normal, organic beats of that. You know? Right. The worst thing for comedy is a single shot. It's a close-up. It's the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to see you. I want to see the reaction. Right. You know, yeah. so it, 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 I, think, I think it's all about knowing when to take chances and when not to. I mean, uh, there are certain times when you're doing gags and it's very technical, you've got to plan it right. You mm-hmm. know, you've got a car crash, you've got to plan it right. But when it's about emotions and, 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 and beats and rhythms, the more you try and control it, the more it's not going to work. Right. Both in drama and comedy. That's my, my opinion. Well, you're, you're trying to get lightning out of a bottle, right? You're trying yeah, to... You're trying to, you're trying to find... You're trying to grab that lightning in a bottle and you don't do it through control. You can't control lightning. No, you can't. You can yeah. only capture it. You know, <laughs> like yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's definitely true. And there's something you said there too about uh, the close-up uh, and how that kills comedy. Uh, reminded me of something John Cleese said, which is um, he said it's not funny to watch a person go crazy. It's funny to watch a person watch a person go crazy. Yeah, yeah. Right, but it, yeah. it's all about the reaction. Johnny is. Uh, his, I remember years ago he said his, his view of comedy was, said, was just tell the joke and run like hell. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as reaction goes, you know, I did a movie called Bullfinger with Eddie and Steve mm-hmm. and, such, and Eddie was running around the, across the freeway, right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember that scene. I do. He was running across the freeway and it's, it's a, a very funny scene. It's a funny but, movie. But thank you. The scene is yeah. not funny because of his running across the freeway. The scene is funny because the reaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Often people make that mistake. Yeah. They, they think, well, the thing is funny. It's like the thing is not funny. The thing, it, they often make that mistake. That's a real common mistake. That's, that's, why, that's why it's the most dangerous thing in the world to do slapstick because you have no place to hide. Because slapstick depends a great deal on the action and not the reaction. Right. It's really hard. Really, really hard. I wouldn't touch it. And what about Bob with uh, Richard and, and Billy? You know, they didn't get along, and so I used that. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. Well, then what else can you do, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the material you're working with in a way. 
right? Yeah. Right. It's the same thing as my monitor not working. What are you going to do? You, if you go against it, that's where the problems come. You might as well go with it. Go cut with the grain. Right. <laughs> right. You know, usually, usually when you go with it and, and it's not what you plan, usually you get gems. Yeah. That's a, it's an interesting thing now. So for instance, what's interesting and maybe you sound like you don't do this because I try very hard. I have a plan, but I don't have a picture in my head of what the thing looks like. Right. And in terms of, I just want it to be honest. That's all I'm looking for. If it's honest, then it's right. If I had, if I thought somebody was going to be screaming and they're quiet or whatever, none of that matters. But a lot of people try to match the picture in their head. No, no big mistake. Yeah. And it's interesting that George Lucas didn't think your voice was right for Yoda. It sounds like he had a picture in his head of what Yoda should sound like. I guess so. I think it's entirely possible, too, because I had did so many voices at that time that he was concerned that I wouldn't be able to possibly. I haven't talked to George about it. But he did audition many, many, many other people uh, until yeah. he asked me to do it again. So... Uh, I, and this I, is after, right? This is after he performed it, but he yeah. wasn't going to use your voice, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, which is fine, you know? Yeah. I had problems that at all. You know, he had a viewpoint. So it just... Uh, but it's also funny, you know, when you do... When you hear temp voices and temp music, it's hard to get that temp voice and that temp music out of your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, people say that. I, I don't actually have that problem, but people do, do say sometimes. that. Do you? Some, with music, sometimes I do, yeah. Hmm. But I used, yeah, I used it, depends, it, it depends how one works with the composer, though. Right. I'm just curious. I mean, you've worked with a, with so many people uh, who who come to the table with their own bag of tricks and their own skill set and their own years of experience when they come to the table. And I'm just wondering. You you mentioned the directors, uh, like oh, you asked a director, but what is just watching somebody work? Like, what's when you watch? A particular actor work is there anything that you learn from that or their process or is it is it just learning through osmosis or is it oh that's a good i'll use that or both yeah i think both i mean i think um it, you know there's so many great actors i've worked with and i'll notice things they the little things they do and uh, uh i'll understand why they do and maybe other people didn't but I, I, I'll get it, and, and uh, I'll, uh, you know, some actors are very, very aware of the camera and editing, and then they do things which surprise me in order to help me later on in the editing. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, I learned from some actors working that way, and other actors who have no idea about a mark, and they don't know what it's supposed to do, and I, and I realized that that they need help, but that doesn't answer your question. Um, it's, uh, I, I just, I just, you, by osmosis and by, and by observation, I, I guess I just learn things. And also I can learn things from people who tell me things. I mean, Bob Painter, who shot uh, both uh, Little Shop of Horrors and, um, and uh, Muppets Take Manhattan, you know, when I, my, Muppets Take Manhattan was my really first movie I directed by myself uh, with Under the Umbrella of Jim and Dave Blazer, but, uh, I remember him giving me one of the best advice is in the beginning there, I would say, okay, cut. And I talked to him or talk to somebody else. He said, no, Frank, after you say cut, 
you have to do one thing. You go right to the actors. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing you do is you go right to the actors. Forget about the lights. Go right to them. And so from now, ever since, I always go right to the actors. And I, if I can't talk to them, I'll say, listen, I, okay, it was good. Let's, let's work on it. But I got to talk over here first. Okay, be right back. At least I'll do that. Because mm-hmm. usually what happens is the people are looking like that and the actors are over there. They cut. So guys, what do you think about that light over here? The actors is going, what, what about me? What about right. So that was one of the best, uh, best suggestions I've gotten from, uh, from a director. You know, huge, mm-hmm. huge suggestion. And other little things too. Mm-hmm. So, but I, 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 as far as the other things, yes, I, I think it's by osmosis and by observation. I'll catch little things that an actor might be doing, and I'll say, hey, that's great. Oh, maybe I'll use that next time. Things like that. Okay. All right. And, and uh, anybody else, any other craft that informs your craft? Like anybody, was something a composer taught you, something a DP, something, uh, is there anything like that? Um, uh, or a writer? Um, I think everything enriches my, my craft. Yeah, I mean, there's not one project I've done that has not been enriched by other people, you know? The question is, who do you listen to? Mm-hmm. And what to listen to? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the danger. And I, I've always said, you know, the, the, the bad suggestions are easy to say no to. It's, right. the good, it's the good suggestions that are hard to say no to. Sure. The hardest thing is to be... The worst thing is to have really good suggestions that are just as good as yours. And you think, well, why not use that suggestion instead of mine? And that's the hard part, to determine which one, which of the good suggestions you use and which are not. How do you do that? I'll use as an example. Like, this is my vision right here. Okay? This is uh-huh. how I see the movie. Okay? Okay. Now, if people give me suggestions and they're way over here, well, they're wrong. It's no good. Yeah. Okay? And then other people will give me suggestions which are good, but they're not that good. Other yeah. suggestions will give me suggestions that are right on the edge, mm-hmm. right here, okay? And I think, oh, it's just as good as mine, so I'll say, I'll take it. And I, my hands go like that. And then I'll get another good suggestion later on. And again, it'll be really, really close, not exactly in the box, but, sure. but okay, I'll go there. So I go that way. Now, what has happened is, I used to be over here, now I'm seeing it over here. Right. All of a sudden, my vision has been bastardized mm-hmm. with, with good suggestions. Right. It's really hard because you can't, with those suggestions, you are no longer in your pure vision. You have allowed other people to give you good suggestions that, even though they're good, don't fit how you see the movie. Right. Right. And the problem with that, then, is there's a, you end up with a Frankenstein in a way, right, where... Well, you get you get something that's not like, yeah, but like you and I know, the most important thing is honesty. You right. don't get what you believe is honest and within the wor- the world in which the character doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. Or you may be honest, but it's not as effective as what you believe. And it's weird. It's the you know I've been there where I in Little Shop of Horrors when we did uh, that Freddie Cooper who God bless him passed away, but he was uh, he. He did everything. I mean, he, he, from God knows, John Houston pictures, John Ford. I mean, he just, he was the camera operator in Britain, okay? Um, and there was the end of the first song, Downtown. Uh, I had uh, Rick and, and Ellen 
my plan was to have them sing and not see each other. And there was a wall like this and there's other people in front of me. And, they, and, and I had that in mind. And then we were shooting something else. And, and Freddie says, you know, we could do that instead of the, uh, the wall. And I said, well, yeah, it's, it's a good idea. You know, and Freddie Cooper, this is only my third movie. Freddie Cooper knows more than I do. So mm-hmm. I'm in his, his way. And for weeks and weeks afterwards, I asked David Geffen, I said, let me reshoot this. It doesn't feel right. And I reshot it the way I wanted to do it. So it's weird. It's, it's, it's the good suggestions are the most dangerous suggestions to me. I took a suggestion once on Whiteface, actually, that I, it wasn't really a suggestion. It was a criticism that I took to heart and I shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, my feeling is always, I would rather make my own mistakes than somebody else's mistakes. Oh, yeah. I think that that's definitely uh, the case. And it was, it was interesting because it was a, it was a clown makeup thing. And the, and the person who did the clown makeup in Whiteface had gone to the Ringling Brothers Clown College. So he was an expert in clowns, and he had it all mapped out. We didn't even talk about what the clowns looked like. He, the actors would disappear, and they'd come back, and he's like, oh, these kinds, you know, the mechanics will be Auguste clowns. I didn't even know the difference between clowns. Like, oh, they're not all white-faced clowns, you know. This is, these are Auguste clowns, almost like they're a different kind of clown, you know. So, but um, at one point he said to me, um, you don't want to bingo, right, on anybody. I didn't know what that was. And it was like fake nose thing. But I, I had sort of written a, a joke in the script where it actually, the bingo would have made the joke make more sense. Uh, but I, I, I was, when he said that with so much disdain, I was like, no, no, I, of course I don't want that. And that was, I, I, that was a mistake on my part. Yeah. I, should, I, should, I should have gone, no, that's what I had in mind. And that, I was right when I. And if you were wrong, at least you were wrong. Yes, exactly. But now I see it and I go, man, I wish I had, you know, so that's the problem. I should have, I should have listened to myself. Um, yeah, there's nothing that is such a, a, a horrible feeling, that feeling of that's another person's mistake. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't like that feeling. I've had comic books come out where the editor made a suggestion and I, I changed it to keep the editor happy. And what's interesting, and I don't think it's because it's a bad suggestion or anything, but I do think it's often inconsistent. And often what happens is people say, I really like this, but I, I didn't like this part. It isn't that the thing is bad or that part is bad. It's that it doesn't fit with the whole. Um, and so that's what people are sensing, I think. And then I'm like, that, those things convince me that I have to trust myself. Um, and that if I'm wrong, I can live with it. But at least I'm wrong, like you say. Exactly. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Frank. Uh that this really generous of you uh, to do I think this. It was, I think it was extraordinarily generous of me. It was. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, it, it, it means a lot to me as uh, just as our, our, in our young friendship for you to do this. It's very nice. To I'm happy to do it. Me. You know, there, there is one thing I just want to mention. You're talking about teaching, and, I, and I, I'll tell you what I do, and I think it's valuable for students. First of all, you talked about... Um, me directing uh, and learning from other directors. There's a point where you can be a student so long and then you've got to own it and you're going to take that step. That's true. You know? And uh, that's what I felt. And I, and I, and I remember, because uh, I remember when, I, when Geffen asked me to do Little Shop of Horrors 
and it had you know it had won awards off Broadway, and it uh, was had run for four years and in London and everything. And I was talking to my uh, the assistant editor of the movie I just done, Let's Take Manhattan, and I said, "Geez, I mean, it's got all these awards and." You know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a huge number of 14 songs and this plant and guest stars. I mean, like, what, you know, what happens if I screw up? And she said, the best advice, she said, Frank, you just put your ass on the line like everyone else. <laughs> and that was such a great thing. And I think you can be a student so, so long, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you got at some point, just put your ass on the line and, and you know, that's all there is to it. And, and last thing I'll say, forgive me, but I, it's important for me when I... I've gone, I've, I've, I've supposedly talked, which I don't do, but I, I've talked in dozens and dozens of places over the world. And, uh, and when people ask me questions and I tell them what I do, I always end, as much as I possibly can remember to end, is I always say, okay, now, your job, the audience, is to say, fuck Frank. <laughs> your job is to say, I can do it better than that. I don't believe what he's, I, b- bullshit. I got my own ideas. That's their job. Their job is not to do what I do. Their job is to say, fuck Frank, I got to do my own way. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Uh, uh, really, it, it, really generous of you to take the time to do this. You're, you're dumping me now. <laughs> I'm not dumping you. I'm letting you live your life. Because you're, you're, 80, I, you're 86 to me. I assume you have things to do. I do. I assume <laughs> you have things to bring to life. So, <laughs> so, so, so go, go bring things to life. And, uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. You are a storyteller. Masters of the craft is produced in Seattle, Washington by belief agency.